Well, good morning, folks, and welcome to this very special service, the 2013 Gould Holiness Lecture Series. The Gould Holiness Lectures offer Eastern Nazarene College community the opportunity to hear outstanding Wesleyan scholars discuss aspects of the Christian doctrine of holiness. Dr. J. Glenn Gould began the Gould Lectures in 1945. In memory of his parents, the Reverend and John, Mrs. John Gould, the inaugural lecture was published in a book entitled The Whole Council of God. Dr. Gould served as a minister of the Church of the Nazarene from 1940 to 1945 and served as editor-in-chief of the Church Schools Publications Office. In 1945, he accepted the pastorate of the Wollaston Church and took on the chairmanship of the Department of Theology at Eastern Nazarene College a position he held until his retirement in 1968 and serving as a professor of religion in the department. Following Dr. Gould's death, his daughter and son-in-law, Winifred and the late Harold Jones, continued to sponsor the lecture series. In addition, the college has been the beneficiary of support from the Gould family for establishing the Gould Library, originally located in Angel Hall, but now relocated to the beautiful second floor of the Nice Library. Eastern Nazarene College is honored to present Dr. Carla D. Sundberg as the guest lecturer for the 2013 Gould Holiness Lecture Series. Dr. Sundberg is a co-district superintendent with her husband, Chuck, of the East Ohio District Church of the Nazarene. Her doctoral work focused on the concept of deification. Her dissertation is entitled The Cappadocian Mothers, Deification Exemplified in the Writings of Basil, Gregory, and Gregory which she presented to the University of Manchester. Dr. Sundberg has been involved in numerous roles in ministry, well known for her interest in team ministry, which she and her husband have modeled since their days as missionaries and field directors in Russia from 1992 to 2005, helping to generate the exceptional growth of the Church of Nazarene in the former Soviet Union. Dr. Sundberg also plays a significant role in denominational leadership. A gifted speaker and recognized as an important theological voice in our denomination, Dr. Sundberg joins us today in discussing holiness in the 21st century. Join me in greeting Dr. Carla Sundberg as she comes to the lectern. Wow, what a privilege it is for me to get to be here with all of you today. And... Um, and really, I'm going to take you back in time on a little time trip to the 4th century, but I hope that's okay. But um, I hope you notice the name Gould related to these lectures today. You see, it was about 60 years ago that my father-in-law and my mother-in-law were students here at Eastern Nazarene College. Long, long time ago, and I hear the story about this blonde-headed girl that walked across campus and the little minor boy from Pennsylvania seeing her, and I think they were hoping they'd stand by each other in chapel and get to hold hands. Something like that happened. And, and they got together here. But my, uh, my father-in-law, he really was, he was this, this uh, coal miner kid from around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was here, and he was studying to go into the ministry, and he wasn't doing very well. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that boat where the studies have been kind of a struggle. And one day he was coming out of a particularly difficult class here in the religion department, incredibly discouraged and determined that he was going to go back home to the Pittsburgh area and be a coal miner together with his dad. As he walked through the halls discouraged, it was Dr. J. Glenn Gould that grabbed him, brought him into his office, and began to talk to him. 
And he said, Bill, I believe that you have a call of God on your life. Don't give up. And it was Dr. Glenn Gould who encouraged him to continue on in the ministry, and he did. And today I have a brother-in-law by the name of J. Glenn Sunberg, named for Dr. J. Glenn Gould, because of the influence of that man in our family. And so I just have to tell you, for me to be able to be here and participate in the Gould Holiness Lectures, knowing that that man changed the direction of our entire family's trajectory of life is incredible. So thank you for the opportunity. And I guess I would just say this, you never know about the moments in life that you will have that may change someone's life, and not just their life, but the lives of all of those that will come after them. So I am privileged to be here. I'm going to take you this morning on a little trip, if you don't mind, to Holiness in Cappadocia. I know you're excited about that. Can't wait to go to Cappadocia this morning. On our way to Cappadocia, I brought a few slides with me. Um, I'd like to take the slide that says why on it. And, um, and I want to take you with me to get there. And to get to Cappadocia, I want to take you to Russia first. Um, I lived as a missionary in the former Soviet Union for 13 years. And for 13 years while we lived there, you know, I visited a lot of Orthodox churches, like this church that you see up on the screen. And I would go to these churches, and I was watching this renewal of Christianity in a land where for 70 years communism had reigned. And I began to wonder about what it was that was in this faith that was, that was important to these people. And so that was part of my thinking as I was continuing in my studies. The second reason is this next slide. And if you'll take a look at it, you see a lady in church, and she's lighting candles. Part of my struggle with what was happening with orthodoxy was that as the church was coming back to life, the only things they seemed to let women do was to sweep the floors and light the candles. And I thought, isn't there something more? Isn't there something more that women might have been doing in the life of the church? And so I had this idea of what could I learn from the church because I was in the orthodox part of the world and what was there about women? Now, what was important in that, you just see the next slide here, is the word tradition. For you see, within orthodoxy, tradition is of greatest authority. In the Protestant part of the world, we hold to the Bible as being the greatest authority in that part of the world. It's tradition. And I thought, okay, so if I go back in tradition, if I go back far enough and I find something within our collective history that speaks to all of Christianity, could it help make a difference? And could it make a difference to the role of women in the church? Could it make a difference to our understanding of holiness within the church? Just a little side note, that picture is one that I took um, in a town called Ephesus. You've read about it in the Bible, probably. And up above the city of Ephesus, there's a secret cave. And if you go in that secret cave, it's known as the Paul and Thecla Chapel. And from church history, we learn about a woman by the name of Thecla. And this is actually just a drawing on the inside of a cave that illustrates what is written in something called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. When you're bored late at night, Google it. You can read it online. All right, the next picture is I actually made it all the way out to Cappadocia. I wanted to go see what Cappadocia was like. I've read about it in different places. You'll read about it in the Bible. But Cappadocia is in Turkey, and it um, is up against modern-day Armenia. It's on the eastern end of Turkey, Mount Ararat. You've heard of that. That would be like out in that area. I got out to Cappadocia. It wasn't anything like I thought of because I was thinking of like Bible times. You get out there. It's like going to Idaho. Anybody here from Idaho? No? All right. If you've been to Idaho, it's sort of barren. It has all these weird uh, 
<laughs> Sorry, my parents live there. I love Idaho. All right. I'll show you the next one. Look at the next one there. Um, the, next, the next slide is another rock formation. It has these bizarre rock formations in Cappadocia, like nothing I've ever seen. They had, um, at one point in time, there must have been underground. This was, would have all been underwater, and there were hot water things that came up, and they formed these rock formations. And then people carved houses and live in them. So it's kind of a really interesting place in terms of if you study geology be a fun place to go. But the first place that we hear about Cappadocia is on the day of Pentecost. And so let me just read this from Acts chapter 2. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia. It's right there. Pontus and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond to the Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both from Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So the people from Cappadocia were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they're hearing about this message. Now let's jump to the fourth century. And we discover the Cappadocian fathers. There are a group of men, these three men, that are known as the Cappadocian fathers. And um, they had taken this gospel of Jesus Christ. It had become a part of who they were. It was a part of their lives. And so these three men become very influential in the church. And they're even probably influential in your lives today, and you don't even know it. Now, these three guys, if you look at them all the way from on the left is Gregory the theologian, is his name, Gregory of Nazianzus, is who he would be. Next to him is, in Greek, I love it, it's, Greg, it's Basil the Mega, is what it says in Greek, but that's Basil the Great. And then the next one is St. Gregory of Nyssa, which is his brother. But these three guys, so this is the Basil, Gregory, and Gregory that were part of my dissertation, are these three guys. Two brothers and a best friend. These men were great theologians, and in their lifetimes, they were arguing about something that we know of as the Nicene Creed. Anybody heard of the Nicene Creed? A few of you have heard of it. All right. These guys are to blame, pretty much. Not totally. But they were the ones that were the ones defending the faith during their entire lifetime. So that's why they're rather famous to us today. But in their lifetimes, these guys were working on a word called theosis. Now, this word theosis is where I want to go today and kind of relate it to something that we call holiness. Theosis means to become divine or more like God. I hope that sounds a little bit like what we might understand as something that we call holiness. You see, they were grappling with different readers and things that they had studied in their period of time. These men were brilliant men. These were men who had studied a great deal. One of the people that they had studied was a man by the name of Irenaeus. He had written this. He said, the word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did through his transcendent love become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Now there's a really important statement there. He became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. An idea that Jesus came down to become what we are so that we could become what he is. Athanasius builds on this, and he says this, For he was made man, that we might be made God. Wow. 
Is that really true? Is that really what God, his intention is for all of us? The people of that fourth century really were grabbing onto the scripture in 2 Peter 1.4. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. Did you know that's what God has in store for us? Jesus came down so that you and I can become participants of the divine nature of God. That that is what the intention is for all of us. In Cappadocian thought, this becomes the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the entire Christian life is theosis or to become like God or union with God. And that's where I want us to go. And I want us to kind of explore that for a little bit this morning. But before that, let me take you on a side trip to Washington, D.C., And if you go to Washington, D.C., and you go into the nation's capital, you'll discover, you know, on the top of the Capitol building, and there's the, the, you know, up on the top. What do you call it? I wouldn't call it rotunda. That's not the name of it. What's it called? Yeah, the top of the Capitol. But, um, (laughs) you know, we were missionaries for 13 years in the former Soviet Union, and our daughters grew up there. They were two and four when they went there. And my girls have toured about everything in Russia you can imagine. They've been through every tour about 15 times. They can give you the tours. I think my daughter, Kara, was about 13, and she was dragging Dr. McGee through Russia, and she was giving her the tour of Moscow and telling her all this stuff. So my daughter has learned that in Russian Orthodox churches, that when you look at the paintings in the churches, the bottom is closer to earth, and the further up you get, it's closer to heaven. And usually you find God in the Trinity up in the top of a dome. That's how it's always painted. My daughter calls me from Washington, D.C., her first time there. She's standing in the Capitol. I think you're in the rotunda looking up. She's looking up, and she goes, okay, Mom, I'm really freaked out. And I said, why? She said, have you ever seen the top of this place? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, do you know who's in the top of the dome? She said, George Washington is in the top of the dome. She said, there's something wrong with that. Okay, and then she looks it up, and the name of the painting in the dome is the apotheosis of George Washington. In other words, the making of George Washington into a god. So she had caught the symbolism of him being in the dome. It really was there. And so there is this symbolism that continues on to today that if you get some of these clues, you pick them up. That freaked her out. That was my side trip. Let's move on. All right. (laughs) So um, just to have a quote here about the Cappadocians using this word. You see, the use of theosis was daring. Non-Christians employed it to speak of pagan gods deifying creatures. The philosophers Iamblichus and Proclus, the poet Callimachus, and the dreaded Julian the Apostate had used Theo in that way. It was not first a Christian word, nor always employed by only Christians after they made it central. From within his deep contemplative life and from previous church tradition, the theologian, that's Nazianzus, picked it up, cleaned it up, and filled it up with Christian sense. He and his fellow theologians took it captive and used it to speak about Christian realities. You have to know how daring this was. Any idea about who was talking about this theosis before then? It was the emperor. That's why it kind of relates to George Washington. The emperor used to talk about this theosis because, you see, it was believed that the emperor became God at his death. That's why in the first century when they would say that you are to say Caesar is Lord and the Christians would say, no, Jesus is Lord. What a declaration that was. 
You see, in the pagan world, it was believed that these humans were becoming gods. And they wanted the humans to worship them. And now Christianity is saying, I'm not going to say that Caesar is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And so they took this entire concept of theosis and they threw in this Christian language and they tried to help us to understand it from a Christian sense. This concept of theosis signaled a return to the telos of humanity, a humanity that was made in the image and the likeness of God. The telos being the goal, the end product, the return to what God's original intent was for humanity, was that they were to be made in the image and the likeness of God. Well, let me take you a moment to uh, a little bit of math. I know you'd be excited about throwing math in with theology this morning. So we've got the kenosis theosis parabola. And I just want you to look at this just a second as we think about this. You see, there's a word called kenosis that is this emptying, this part of Jesus Christ where he empties out himself. And so there's this downwardness of God who came from on high, pours himself out, and then God raises him back up. And this entire path, this entire parabola is a path that you and I are invited to participate in. We are invited to become a part of this journey from kenosis to theosis, this idea of emptying out and then being lifted back up. We read about it in what we call the kenosis hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, that's the kenosis, gave himself up. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world." That is ultimately the goal. Now, I just want to go through the steps in the parabola real quickly this morning. This is part of what I discovered along the way as I was studying what these guys were doing back there in Cappadocia. And some of it began to sort of sink in and make sense with me. You see, humankind is made in the image of God and is a reflection or a mirror of that image. All of us are created in their minds, in the Cappadocian minds, as this giant mirror. And we were created as this mirror to be looking upon God. And when we look at God, we are a reflection of him to the world. That was the intent that God had for every one of us. And, you know, I told you I wanted to study about the women as well. And, and the point was that the image was in Adam and the image was in Eve. Women were included in that image. And I just have to say that is an important point because by this time in the fourth century, there were certain people saying, we're not sure that the women can have the image of God in them. I believe it was Tertullian that said, every woman has a little bit of Eve inside of her. Look out for her. She's going to pull you astray. Well, one reason I liked my Cappadocian brothers here. My husband said I spent more time with them in six years than I did with him, but not really. But um, <clears throat> the Cappadocian boys, 
Here's a, (laughs) this is from Basil the Great. I just want to read this because he was so progressive, I think, for his period of time. And the image is created equally in men and in women. God created man in his image. Man, asked the woman. How does that relate to me? Man was created, she continued, but God didn't say there only exists a man. In addition to man, he revealed that the conversation was in regard to the creation of humankind. Do not misunderstand what is meant by a man, that it refers only to the male gender. For the scriptures add male and female, he created them. The woman is equal with the man and has the honor to be created in the image of God. The creation of each is equal, equal in good deeds, equal in honor, and identical in reward. May the woman not say, I am weak. Weakness comes from the flesh, but strength is in the spirit or the soul. Since the image of God is identical in each one of them, may there be equal honor and equal good works done by both. There is no excuse for bodily or fleshly weakness. Is a body like this weak? How can the male gender compete with the female when it comes to the personal life? How can a man emulate the endurance of a woman during times of fasting through her persistence in prayer, the strength of her tears, and her diligence in good works? They were very powerful in saying, look, the image of God is equal in man and in woman, and it is God's intention that every one of you be a reflection of God to this world. The problem is this next step. The image is tarnished by the fall into sin. Every one of us, we can turn our backs on God. And if you think about that, if you turn the mirror around and you walk the other direction, you are no longer a reflection of the one that you had been facing. I also want to make something incredibly clear here. God never turns his back on you. You're the one who turns your back on him. You're not a reflection of him because you're facing a different direction. And one thing the Cappadocians made incredibly clear was the image might be tarnished by your fall into sin, but your capacity to reflect the image of God will never, ever be lost. And their favorite scripture related to this was from Luke 15, 8. And it would talk about the woman who was looking for her coins. A woman in the Middle East, when she would get married, would get a dowry and often maybe 10 coins. And they would sew them into their headband of their headdress. And this was their dowry, but it was also their life insurance policy. If their husband passed away, the only way she was going to survive was to be able to spend this money. So if we read this story, we understand that this woman has lost one of her coins. She's lost her life insurance policy. This is a big deal. So she's hunting all over the house eventually to find this coin. The Cappadocians said, the lost coin is like the image that's been lost in you. It's still within the house. It's just down in the corner and it's dirty. But the capacity to reflect God will always be there. You can find that coin, you can clean it up, and you can put it back where it belongs. And for every one of us, that capacity to reflect him will always exist. Christ assumes the human nature in order to restore humanity to its original nature. In other words, there's only one way that we can have all this restored and we can become in the image that we're supposed to be. It's because of what Jesus did. Nazianzen said he remained what he was, what he was not, he assumed. And this word assumed or assumption is a very important word in these people's understanding. In Nazianzen's most recognized statement on the topic, it comes from Epistle 101, he states, For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. In essence, when Jesus becomes human, he begins to heal the human race. 
And so often we focus on the cross, and there is nothing wrong with focusing on the cross, but sometimes we do that to the detriment of looking at the entire life of Jesus Christ. For you see, from the moment that he stepped into this earth, he began to heal human flesh. And he shows us what it means to be a holy or sanctified baby. He shows us what it means to be a holy or sanctified 12-year-old when we find him in the temple. And he shows us what it means to be a holy or sanctified adult. And he is our telos. He is our goal. As he reclaims all of humanity and all of human flesh. He assumed the worst that he might give us the better. He became poor that we might through his poverty be rich. He took upon himself the form of a servant that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might conquer. He was dishonored that he might glorify us. He ascended that he might draw us to himself who were lying low in the fall of sin. And the assumption was for all of humanity. I just want you to know this. It wasn't just for the men. (laughs) The woman sinned and so did Adam. The serpent deceived them both. And one was not found to be stronger and the other weaker. But dost thou consider the better? Christ saves both by his passion. Was he made flesh for the man? So he was also for the woman. He is called the seed of David. So perhaps you think the man is honored, but he is born of a virgin. And this is on the woman's side. And I want you just to think about this a minute. Eve, the one who had carried all this guilt upon her and all the women who had carried all the guilt upon them. Jesus comes and is carried in the womb of a woman first. The human flesh that becomes healed by his assumption begins in the womb of a woman. And then he was raised as a man and he heals all of humanity in an incredibly powerful way. I'm going to skip on. In conversion, one's capacity to reflect the divine nature is once again restored. I've mentioned that. When you, you know, it is when we turn around, we once again are able to reflect his image. It is when we decide that we're going to turn and we're going to face God that again we can reflect him. And just this story was from Nazianzen's own life. He had run from serving God. He was out in a boat. He was in the middle of a shipwreck. (laughs) He basically says, hey, God, if you save me from this, I'm going to serve you. And he does. The next slide, the Christian life becomes one of incessant transformation into the likeness of God as man stretches out with the divine infinity. You see, there's this synergism that happens here. It's this idea that I work together with God. I participate with God, and I am continually transformed as I stretch out with God. As I participate in the divine nature of God, I am continually transformed through all of my life. Gregory of Nyssa writes this, There is reason why we say that the great Moses, moving ever forwards, did not stop in his upward climb. He set no limit to his rise to the stars. He constantly kept moving to the next step, and he continued to go ever higher because he always found another step that lay beyond the highest one that he had reached. This is the call to all of us. We are all on a call, our journey, our journey to take us closer and closer to the original. And so while there is that moment where we turn back around and we can be a reflection of him again, then we begin on this incredible journey of participating with God throughout life. That's the Cappadocian understanding. And here we have, throughout the journey, there's an ever greater participation in God. 
And at this point, they began to talk about their sister. They had this great sister by the name of Macrina, and I'm going to talk about her a little bit more on Friday. But Macrina is placed as the bride in the Song of Solomon. I'm sure you've all been reading that in your devotional reading. But um, if you read the Song of Solomon, we discover here that her participation in Christ takes on new meaning. Gone is a desire to simply be an imitator of Christ by the practice of virtues. Love for the bridegroom now becomes the passion that drives one's life. What happens here in this life is that, first of all, we want to participate with God. And the synergism means that I want to act like God. In other words, I want to do things. They practice virtues. They prayed. They fasted. They they did things they thought that Jesus would do in the world. They wanted to be like him. But there became this moment, and I would say this in the Sister Macrina's life, where no more could we tell whether she was trying to be like Christ or did I see Christ in her. And as we continue in our Christian walk, there comes that moment where no longer is there a distinction. I can't tell what the difference is. When I look at you today, am I seeing a reflection of Jesus in you? Or am I really seeing Jesus in you? And that was the Cappadocian understanding. I'm going to skip the next slide. And the women, we're going to talk more about them on Friday. That's just a picture of three of them. But finally, I'm going to take you way over to LeBron James. (laughs) And I purposely put him up there with the Cleveland shirt on because I live in Ohio now. But I want to ask you something. What is the goal of your life? You see, for many young people, for example, maybe it's somebody like LeBron James. I want to be a great athlete. I want to be a great sports star. And you know what we end up doing? We end up buying the same clothing that these guys wear. We buy their shoes, we buy their shirts, we buy all the stuff that they do. We go out and we shoot hoops for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day because we want to be like them. But what is the goal of your life? If Jesus is the goal, then wouldn't we want to practice being like him? And you see, the Cappadocians understood that. The goal for all of us is humanity is to be in the image of God. They also understood the importance of our participation in practicing to become more like him. So day after day, we have to ask ourselves this question, am I being like him? And I'm going to have us sing here at the end this morning, Oh, to be like thee. We sang that before, and I want us to sing it again now. And I'm just wondering... If we really had to examine our hearts and our lives, is our desire to be like Christ? I think sometimes we like to say, I want to be a Christian. And yet to really stop and say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to practice being like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. We almost rebel against that. It's almost like I want to do everything I can do in the world and still get by with being called a Christian. I'm sorry, but those Christians in the fourth century, they couldn't afford to do that. They didn't have that luxury. If they were going to be followers of Jesus Christ, it was all or nothing. And many of them, even in the first part of that century, died as a result of their love of Jesus Christ. We don't have to die today for our faith. But I think we need some of us to be taking it quite seriously. There's no messing around. There is practicing 
and participating and allowing the Holy Spirit to unite us with God to become the people of God that he intended us to be. Can we stand? And I'm going to ask these ladies to sing for us this morning. And as we sing, Oh, to be like thee, I just want this to be a meditative moment in your own hearts and your own lives. Do you really desire to be like him? Or have you been halfway being like him? Is there something in the way of being completely sold out to him? Are you hanging on to too much of the world? I believe the spirit is here. He's speaking. If you want to pray at an altar, you can pray at an altar. You can pray right where you are. Or you can just ask the Lord to reveal to you, where are you in your life? Do you want to be like him? Do you want to give it all over to him?